It's officially 46 days before Christmas. <laughs> Last time we went to Costco, it's, it feels like Christmas. There are Christmas trees and Christmas lights and all the things that you can buy for Christmas. Um, it's, it's, it's coming soon. Uh, I would say that if Jesus is coming soon, <laughs> Christmas is coming sooner. <laughs> it's all already here. I can almost taste Christmas. Uh, do you feel Christmas already? Yeah? Amazing. Amazing. In the Philippines, um, as soon as it hits September 1, we started start playing Christmas carols. Interesting. And some of you probably have decorated your house with Christmas lanterns, Christmas trees. Um, you are anticipating and preparing for dinner and, and parties and friends coming over. Uh, so many things that can happen on Christmas, but... Um, we might get distracted with, with food and gifts and trees and all these things, but we have to focus ourselves on the real meaning of Christmas. The real meaning of Christmas is about Jesus. Amen? So, in this Christmas season, there will be, again, this smorgasbord of concepts of like lordship and, and faith and, and three kings. There are no three kings in the Bible, by the way. There are magis. Um, the birth of Jesus Christ, the gospel, the center of Christmas, all these things, if we are to articulate our faith, if we are to articulate our faith about what we mean by what we say, it must fit squarely with what the scriptures say and what the scriptures mean. So that when a person comes to us and asks about who is Jesus and what is his message, a person, that person is exactly asking what the gospel message is. And our knee-jerk reaction would probably be, Jesus Christ, my personal Lord and Savior, and the gospel message is about how to go to heaven. Now, that may be true, but that is not entirely correct. That is not the gospel message. Interestingly, it may be true, but when you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all the four gospels, your Bible, whatever translation that you have, it's always entitled the Gospel of Matthew, the Gospel of Mark, the Gospel of Luke, the Gospel of John, because it's the Gospels. The Gospel exactly is about the story of Israel and their hope for a coming king who will restore the kingdom of God. That is the Gospel message. But the way they, they present the story, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, is that in Jesus... The true Jewish king has come back, and he has come to herald the kingdom of God, to restore the kingdom of God. The Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John is about Jesus as he is the true king of the Jews. His death on the cross is how he defeated the ultimate enemy of the world. His resurrection is the proof that his message is correct and his claims are true. His ascension to heaven further proves who he is. That is the gospel message. The gospel message is not about how to go to heaven. That is not the gospel. What exactly is the gospel? The gospel is strictly about the story of Jesus. It has nothing to do with your faith or my faith. It's nothing to do with your sin or my sin. It's about the story of Jesus. It's not about how to be saved. 
So when we read the book of Revelation, and we are halfway through the book of Revelation, some people think that the book of Revelation is about the end of the world. Now let me be clear, just in case. The book of Revelation is not about prophecies that predict the future. That is not Revelation. The book of Revelation is not a puzzle book that only the wise and the spirituals and the pastors can understand. That's not the book of Revelation either. The book of Revelation is a subversive letter of John. He is making a critique of Rome or Babylon during his time. He's trying to make the, the church understand what's going on presently during his time. It's also a letter of hope so that he can encourage the believers to stand firm in the faith. If there is one message of the book of Revelation, is this. Jesus is coming soon. That is the book of Revelation. Now, to understand this, the first century believers understood that to make sense of the book of Revelation is to understand the gospel message in the context of the Roman Empire or the first century setting. Without that, we will have to speculate on the message of the gospel or the message of the book of Revelation. Let me further on with the story. Revelation chapter 18. Revelation 18 verses 1 and 2. It says, After this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was made bright with his glory. And he called out with a mighty voice, Fallen! Fallen is Babylon the Great. She has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beasts. This is the opening of chapter 18. What he's trying to say is that Babylon, which we have established last week, is about the city that is represented by Rome. Because during the time Babylon is destroyed, Rome was the center of the Roman Empire. And when John talks about Babylon, it's a, an anagram for Rome. Rome is the city that represents the kingdom of the world. So when he talks about fallen, fallen is Babylon the Great, he's saying Rome is fallen. Judgment is coming. John is giving a critique of the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire is the most powerful, most decadent, and most sought-after cities in the Roman Empire, the city of Rome. The city of Rome is probably the equivalent of, say, Kremlin or Beijing or Pyongyang. Or maybe we'll have to throw out also London or Paris or, or Tehran or maybe Washington, D.C. John is trying to picture out what's happening presently in the world. John is announcing the fall of Rome as it is and everything that she represents. And what he says is that Rome, Babylon, will become an abandoned place, a heap of ruins. It will become a dwelling place of demons and birds and beasts. She will become unfit for humans. In the ancient world, abandoned places and cities are understood as dwelling places for demons, similar to our understanding of haunted houses. Anyone been to haunted houses? No. Yes. Is it scary? There must be nothing in there, but according to their understanding, spirits and demons dwell in places like this. Now, similar to what, the, what Jesus is saying in Matthew 12, 
This is what Jesus said about demons and places, abandoned places. Matthew 12, he said, When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest. What is the waterless places? Waterless, just like what we mentioned last Sunday, is where Cain went after he killed his brother. He settled in the land of Nod. Nod is wandering, a place of wandering. What is a place of wandering? It's the desert. Waterless, desert. That is where demons dwell in the desert, abandoned places. Both the Quran and the Hadith call the evil spirits jinn. Of course you understand this. So when your kids watch cute character, cartoon character Aladdin, the creature that comes out of the lamp is a jinn. He's fat and cute, but according to the Quran, it's an evil spirit, a demon. Evil spirits, parents, listen, evil spirits and demons do not give three wishes. Yes? No, only in cartoons. Evil spirits, they attack, they possess, they manipulate, they do not give three wishes. See, even in the non-Christian world, genes are understood to be evil spirits. Why is it in the lamp? Because it was, uh, it was abandoned. It was imprisoned in the lamp. Abandoned places is where demons live. And what John is saying is that Babylon, with all its glory, will fall and it will become an abandoned place fit only for demons and evil spirits. So when it says that all nations and kings and merchants, all these three categories of people have benefited in Babylon, there's an interplay of ideas of sex, money, and power. Sex for pleasure, power for politics, and money for decadence. You'll find that in verse 3. It says, For all nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality, and the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her, and the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. He mentioned three sets of people. Now, these three sets of people are represented in money, sex, and power. In the first 21st century, Sigmund Freud popularized psychoanalysis. Psychoanalysis asserts that a person's behavior is largely influenced by his sexuality. And crimes and being responsible citizen are both influenced by the formation of sexuality when a person is growing up. And when a sexuality is repressed, crimes committed become the result. This is not about sin. It's about repressed sexuality, according to him. And therefore, a person who commits crime should not be put in prison. They must be put in the bed, and they must go through psychoanalysis, according to him. Another person who represents power is Friedrich Nietzsche. You must have heard about him. He wrote a novel. It's entitled, God is Dead. He posits that God is already dead in the 20th century. So he said, if life has no meaning because there is no God, then there's nothing left for me but to enforce my desire on life. It's an active assertion of my will against the others over me. His understanding is that it's about dominance and power. What he's saying is that the weak, sorry, sorry. What he says is that the strong, the healthy, and the wise will dominate the weak. 
It sounds like evolution. Why? Because it is evolution. Why is evolution wrong? Because it denies that we are made in the image of God. According to him, it's all about power. Third figure is Karl Marx, one of the most popular figures even today, as of today. Karl Marx developed the idea that we are living in a constant struggle between the capitalists and the workers, or between the bourgeoisie and the proletariat. But the idea of communism is to even out, balance the distribution of wealth. So the idea here, it's all about money. Because at the very end, in the end, it's all about who owns what. See, all these powers are trying to juggle our minds and trying to confuse us as to what our real mission is as a Christian. It's all about power, sex, and money. And if we summarize all the motivations and the goals and the dreams of this present life, they all revolve around sex, money, and power. And with this in mind, let's talk about Rome. Let's talk about Rome. I want to paint a bigger picture of what Rome really looks like in the time of John. When Rome was founded, it was founded as a government that is ruled by the people, for the people, of the people. It's SPQR, Senatus Populus Que Romanus. It's meant to be ruled by the people. But Julius Caesar wanted to be king. He wanted to be dictator. So the Senate assassinated Julius Caesar. And the people didn't like it because Julius Caesar was apparently a hero to them. And so they, they, they tried to make up. His successor was his nephew by the name of Augustus. And he also used the word Caesar. So he's Augustus Caesar. But he tried to see an opportunity to bring Rome to another level. So he invented the word apotheosis. What is apotheosis? Apotheosis is a process where the old or the dead emperor is deified. So what he did exactly in history is he deified Julius Caesar and put him in a position of a god. That makes him the son of God. So in a coin that is minted for Augustus Caesar, there's an inscription that says, Augustus Caesar, son of God, Divi Filius. If, he's, if Julius Caesar is God and he is son of God, then he must be worshipped. That's the logic in there. And in order to secure his throne, he initiated a doctrine. It's called Pax Romana. Pax Romana is about the peace of Rome. What it means is that every city, every country that Rome invaded is given protection. It will be stable economically and politically, hence the peace of Rome. This is the context of the gospel that we now preach about. This is Euangelion, the gospel. This is the original gospel. The gospel is really the gospel of Caesar, not the gospel of Jesus. But we have taken that word and redeemed that word to make it our own, the gospel of Jesus Christ. So the gospel, Euangelion, the good news is all the same. It's about the Roman Empire. Now, originally, the gospel or good news is about the victory of the Roman Emperor. When a Roman emperor goes to another land, invade another land, a herald will come back to Rome and will announce good news. The emperor has won. The emperor has won. It means when the emperor Caesar comes back, there will be celebration in honor of him. What that means is that it is good news because it means more land, more gold, more slaves, more allies, and the kingdom will have 
more lands and more subjects. That's why it's good news. Caesar is king. The Roman Empire is expanding. And the people's response would be an ever-increasing fides or faith. See, faith is not our original. Faith is an understanding of the Roman Empire. Their understanding of faith is about allegiance. If Caesar is king and is bringing gifts and benefits to me, then my only response is allegiance or faith. What it means is that if you give your allegiance to Caesar, giving your allegiance to another king is plain and simple treason, hence the crucifixion. People who commit treason, who claim that there are other kings, will be crucified. That's why we have Jesus Christ on the cross. Allegiance, or fides, is best expressed in the worship of Caesar. What does it mean? Songs and poetry were made in honor of Caesar. Coins are minted with his image in honor of Caesar. Celebrations of gymnasiums in amphitheaters and buildings were made in honor of Caesar. Even kids were named after Caesar. That is how Caesar is worshipped and allegiance is established with Caesar. That, for them, is the good news. And in the first century, everyone wants to be in Rome. This is like Las Vegas at night. It's ready and alive. It's ready to party. Everyone wants to be there. This is like, in our time, the American dream. I would even suspect that some people would be more excited to hear about their visa application rather than to hear the gospel message of Jesus Christ. Because it's the American dream. And some people are confused as to what really is good news. See, American dream is not the gospel of Jesus Christ. If Jesus Christ, if you're praying for blessing and Jesus has given you the blessing of an approval of U.S. visa, it's not good news. It's not the gospel of Jesus Christ. It may be a blessing, but it's not the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so with all this happening in Rome, Jesus came along and he presented himself to be the long-awaited king of the Jews. Interesting. He's the long-awaited king of the Jews. And what did he do? When Pilate confronted him and asked him, he did not deny, are you the king of the Jews? He said, you said so. He did not deny it, therefore he affirmed it. He is the king of the Jews. Jesus Christ is the king of the Jews. If, if Caesar has a, a forerunner, a person that goes back to Rome to announce his victory, Jesus Christ also has John the Baptist. John the Baptist was seen baptizing people in the Jordan River, announcing, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He is king, John the Baptist, his forerunner. When Caesar comes back, he's bringing in gifts. He's bringing in goods to satisfy the people's desire for sex, money, and power. But when Jesus Christ came, his point is to redeem his people from sin. So that means whatever he did, whatever he provided, all the healing, the miracles, the food, the wine, all the things that he did are mere incidentals. That is not the point why he came. The point of why he came is to redeem the people from their sin. To redeem the people from their lust for sex, money, and power. The point of his return was to redeem the world from the reign of the serpent and to establish the kingdom of God. 
It's the same message of Jesus Christ. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is here. It's here. Now the cross reverses the curse of death over sin, over every transgression, over every offense against God. And it all happened on the cross. The cross is a, a very complicated event. But you see, in the eyes of the world, the self-proclaimed king of the Jews, Jesus Christ, died a shameful death. That is what the world saw. But how would you react with the news that just after three days, he was back on his feet, never to die again? Now that, ladies and gentlemen, is good news. A person coming back to life is good news. See, in the eyes of the Jews, once you die on the cross, you are condemned. Once you are condemned, God's curse is on you. And therefore, you have no business coming back to life. The fact that Jesus Christ came back to life means God approved him, affirmed him that he is indeed who he claims he is, King of the Jews. This is by far, I think, the best comeback from being shamed in public. See, it is not good news that Jesus Christ died on the cross. Because the Romans understood everyone dies. It's not good news. Good news is that he rose from the dead. That is good news. See, rising from the dead is why dead emperors are made to become gods. Apotheosis. No Roman emperors have come back to life, by the way. Rising from the dead validates the claim for divinity. And Jesus has proven that by rising from the dead, that he alone, not Augustus, not Tiberius, not David Koresh, not David Jones, not Apollo Kibuloy, is the real son of God. To claim otherwise is plain and simple nonsense. The basis for his claim is because he rose from the dead. He proved it. Now we know according to Revelation 18 that judgment is coming to Babylon. Now we know that those who benefited and allied with the woman, Babylon, will also share in the judgment. But verse 4 got my attention. This is what it says in verse 4. Then I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. Now, this is interesting in many levels, but if Revelation is a critique of Rome and the world in general, it also points to the realistic picture of what's happening in the church. If not then, also now. See, the message to the seven churches in chapters 2 and 3, the message to the seven churches in Asia Minor, squarely fits verse 4. Come out of her, my people. This is what it says in chapter 2, verse 14. But I have few things against you. He's writing a letter to the church in Pergamum. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel. And what's the teaching of Balaam? It's enticing the people to eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. That is the teaching of Balaam. And what John is saying is that during his time in the first century, the church are intermingling with the world by practicing food sacrifice to idols and sexual immorality. That means there are people in the church who are compromising their faith. Why? It's because some people think that it's okay to compromise. This is precisely why some believers 
think that allegiances to corporations and to political parties and to clubs, certain allegiances are okay. Think about it. Babylon calls you, calls close-minded, misogynist, and even racist if you believe that abortion is murder. You are racist and living in the past if you believe that an unborn child is made in the image of God. The world, Babylon, has no concept of the image of God. For them, it's just a clump of cells. To them, you are a misogynist because you deny their rights. You're a religious bigot and fanatic if you have an opinion of the truth. They're the only ones who hold the truth. They should say what is true. Now, some believers who that want to be ostracized will simply fold without a fight. Others who fear retaliation will just keep their mouth shut. And some people, the worst, are clearly misled and deceived. This is what it says in verse 4. Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. Clearly, there are people in the church who are taking part and benefiting from Babylon. Here's the thing. If you benefit from Babylon, you will also share in the judgment that is about to come. Let me be frank. We cannot bow down to more than one king. Either you bend the knee to Caesar or you bend the knee to Jesus Christ. Beloved, we have to make a stand. We have to call spade a spade. Church, compromise is not an option. Have we agreed on that? Come on, with conviction. See, we cannot bow down to more than one king. There's only one king that we know. There's only one king that we give our allegiance to. And that is Jesus Christ. King Jesus. And we belong to his kingdom. This is not the case of the bow now, repent later. Oh, God will understand. Oh, yeah. God is wise. And he loves me. He takes care of me. So if I compromise, God will understand. Their concept is bow now, repent later. May I remind you that whatever we say and do is on public records. God knows, God sees, God hears. Jesus said, if you deny me here in public, I will also deny you in front of my father later. To believe that we didn't have a chance, but some people would think this, that we don't have a chance if we do not accommodate to the whims of Babylon. It's a lie. To believe that we will not be able to survive if we don't accommodate and compromise is a lie. This is the lie that the Israelites believe when they went out from Egypt to the wilderness. They think that their only salvation is Egypt, that in the wilderness they will die. They won't believe that God is able to provide for their needs every day for 40 years. No. So every time they have a chance to reminisce, to think about Egypt, to go back to Egypt, they would take the chance. And they would say, let's go back to Egypt. Because in Egypt, our, our needs are provided. We have everything in there. Water, food, shelter, sex, power, and money. Everything is in Egypt. You see, God is able to provide for us even today. Hence our prayer. Give us this day our daily bread. When we pray that we believe that God is able to provide, we don't have to compromise. It is no coincidence that Jesus Christ was tempted the same way. After fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, he was not trying to lose weight like me. 
his sugar lever is not on the roof like Ferdy. Jesus Christ fasted in order to prepare for the intense ministry for the next three years. That's the reason why he fasted there. And on the last day of his fasting, he was approached by the devil, Satan. Turn these, these stones into bread. I mean, you have the power. You've got the power. You can make miracles. Do this. You don't have to trust the Father to provide for you. You can do it yourself. But Jesus Christ, instead of succumbing to the temptation, you know, like Esau, Esau who forsook his inheritance for a single meal, Jesus chose hunger over faith, over allegiance to this God. He didn't say, bow now, repent later. That wasn't an option for him. It's not an option for Jesus. It's not an option for us either. Amen? Come on, with confidence. Amen. See, Babylon, on the other hand, is proud. She asserted radical libertarian approach. Verse 7, as she glorified herself and lived in luxury, so give her a measure of torment and mourning, since in her heart she says, I sit as queen. I am no widow, and mourning I shall never see. That is a proud woman there. There are certain protocols for royalty, and mourning is never one of them. In contrast, she would always present herself dressed elegantly to do her duty as queen. Exactly what it says in verse 16, that she was clothed in fine linen, in purple and scarlet, adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, and Louboutin, and Louis Vuitton, and Chanel. No, it's not in there. It's not in there, but you understand what I mean. Practically everything that glitters, sex, money, and power, she has everything. This is like Las Vegas. She has everything. This is like New York. She has everything. But you will find repeatedly in verses 8 and 10 and 17, judgment will come in a single hour. You read your Bible, it's all the same. Judgment will come in a single hour. It's like John is saying, judgment will come, and it will be imminent and swift. It's coming. Believe me, it's coming. And it's going to be quick. In the following verses, 21, 22, and 23, it says that the swiftness of her judgment will become like a millstone thrown in the sea. You know, it doesn't float. Stones don't float. It's now you see, now you don't. It's quick. So her judgment, her fall, will be quick. Revelation 18, verse 21. So will Babylon the Great be thrown down with violence and will be found no more. And the sound of harpists and musicians, of flute players and trumpeters, will be heard in you no more. And craftsmen of any craft will be found in you no more. And the sound of the mill will be heard in you no more. And the light of a lamp will shine in you no more. And the voice of the bridegroom and the bride will be heard in you no more. There will be no celebration as such when judgment comes. Because her greatest crime... Is in verse 24. Her greatest crime was, in her was found the blood of the prophets and of the saints and of all who had been slain on earth. Her, her greatest crime is not about living luxuriously. Her greatest crime is that he compromised with the beast and the dragon to kill the saints and the prophets of God. Babylon, you see, is the fashion capital of the world. Babylon is where kings sit on the throne of powers. 
Babylon is where God is denied and His truth is suppressed. Babylon is the center for exploitation and corruption. Babylon stands in contrast to the new and heavenly city that is coming from heaven on earth, the new Jerusalem. I would say that Babylon is the perfect example of the 21st century woman who slips around with whoever and however she wants without the fear of consequence. That's the reason why I think the 21st century woman, the modern woman as they say, furiously insists on her rights. And they say, my body, my choice. Because you see, freedom is really about pleasure. And without rules, pleasure without consequence. That is, that is not freedom. The modern woman is asking for freedom that is absolutely free, without consequence and rules. Let's try to complete the picture. When Jesus Christ <clears throat> excuse me, entered Jerusalem for the last time, he went straight to the temple. And he confronted the people in authority. And during his time, the one in charge of the temple is the high priests. He's the boss. He's in charge. The high priest enforces the covenant of God to the people. He must make sure that there is a daily sacrifice and a yearly sacrifice. It's called Yom Kippur. Even the Jews until now do it. Yom Kippur. They have to kill animals on the altar so that their sins will not pile up. That's the protocols for their covenant. Here, the thing is that this high priest, the high priests are in charge of that. The temple must be consistently sanctified as the place where God rules and where people meet with God so God can give his grace and mercy. But even though that should be the temple and that should be the responsibility of the high priest, this is how Jesus described the temple in his time. Matthew 21, verse 12. Jesus entered the temple and he drove out all who sold and bought in the temple and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. It makes you want to think, why are there merchants inside the temple? That's not the original design of the temple of Solomon. That's not the original design of the second temple that was raised up by the Jews in times of Nehemiah, Haggai, and Malachi. That is not the design of the temple that Herod refurbished. Why are there merchants inside the temple courts? It's because they've turned the temple... Yeah, the times are changing. We have to adapt to the times. It says, he said to them, it's written, my house shall be called house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. The high priest is in charge of the temple. The temple is a sacred place reserved for God to meet with the people. But the high priest has deemed it wise to prioritize transactions of selling animals rather than providing space for people to pray. It's important that the temple has revenues, money. Now, think about it. When Jesus quotes, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers, he was quoting from Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 11. Robbers... In, in the original, it's lestes. It's not really robbers, someone who steals, who ransacks your house and steals your things. A robber is lestes. Lestes is more like a compound word for lawbreaker. It's more like lawbreaker, lestes. So it's not robber. It's 
lawbreaker. What that means is that, what Jesus is saying is that, my house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of lawbreakers. What the high priest is providing, see, after a lawbreaker breaks the law, he hides inside a cave. Securely. He hides. What Jesus is trying to say in the same way is that the high priest is giving security, is giving security to lawbreakers. That, what it means that, as long as you have money to pay, you pay the exact tax and gratuity, even if you're a lawbreaker, an idol worshiper, or an immoral adulterer, just come to the temple and I will guarantee you forgiveness. You see how corrupt this is? This is what Jesus encountered during his time. The temple is no more sacred space. Can you imagine the high priest masterminding the failed assassination attempt of Jesus Christ? You find that in John chapter 11, verse 53. He masterminded, he tried ways to kill Jesus Christ. He's the high priest. Can you imagine the Supreme Court Justice or maybe the President of the United States being involved in such crimes? You would not. It's no wonder when Jesus Christ was crucified, he was with two robbers. Again, technically they're not robbers, they are lawbreakers. See, robbers, robbery is a petty crime. You, you don't crucify robbers, right? They were crucified because they are terrorists. They are sedition people, people who committed atrocity and they say, Caesar is not my king, I have another king. That's treason. They were crucified on his right and on his left because of treason. See, the other one was accusing Jesus. Are you really the king of the Jews? If you are, then help me. Help yourself, help me. I don't think you are, so I'm not going to waste my time on you. But the other one is, is praying, Lord, take me with you. Because what he saw is who Jesus really is. He saw Jesus for who he really is. What that means is that he never has to go to the temple to pay taxes and gratuity and tips just to encounter God. On the cross, he met Jesus. He met God face to face. Of all the places in the world, he met God face to face. So he can say on the cross, God understood what it means to suffer. I'm not alone. He, God understood what it means to be mocked. God really feels my pain for what it really is. On the cross, God shared in his suffering. And what John is telling us is that on the face of the cross, there are only two options. One, enjoy the benefits of Rome. Enjoy it. It will be better for the people who say, crucify him, crucify him, than for them to be crucified on the cross. So one option is benefit from Rome. Compromise. Accommodate. Or, there are people who see the cross as a crossroad. It's not the end of the story. It's only a prelude to something bigger. The cross is how God destroys the curse of the law, which is death. The cross is how God shows the next step to unveiling His new kingdom, the new city, the new Jerusalem. See, even if you look at this in an economic perspective, if you do the math, the future outweigh the sacrifices of the present. And this is the reason why the book of Hebrews described this perspective as glorious. Think about it. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. 
this is what he said. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, but is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. See, presently, we Christians, in the same way, we might suffer and we might be suffering. But it far outweighs what we will have in the future with Him in glory in the new Jerusalem. I may be speaking in abstraction, but nevertheless, I'm speaking about the truth. My daughter is three years old and she's been acting like a doctor lately. So I'm sick for a couple of days now. She puts a thing under my armpit and she would say, Papa, let me read your temperature. And then she would take it out and whatever, the ruler or stick or whatever. And then she would say, you have a fever. You take some rest. And she would give me vitamins to eat and say, sleep. So, you know, I'm, I cannot help it. I go along with her imaginary hospital play. So, a couple of days, I told her I'm going to buy her a stethoscope. She's so, so excited. I can see in her eyes. Stethoscope. She cannot even spell it. Stethoscope. Whatever. She knows it because she has. She saw in her show. Stethoscope. I'm, I'm going to become a real doctor there. <laughs> My daughter is uh, silly in that way. So I said, I'm, I'm going to buy you. So I told her the other day that I already purchased it online. It's going to be coming in a couple of days. It will be inside the box, and she will open the box, and it's going to be a pink stethoscope because she loves pink. But three years old, you would not expect her to understand certain things like order online, what does it mean? Deliver in three days, what does it mean? All she understands is today or tomorrow. That's it. I'm going to see it now. Today or tomorrow. She doesn't even say it tomorrow. Tomorrow. That's what she said. Tomorrow. See, my language is like the language of the Bible. It doesn't make sense when John tells us that Jesus is coming back soon. Like, when? How? They've been saying it for 2,000 years now. When? How? Because we don't have the language to comprehend that. He's coming back soon. Now, beloved, Jesus Christ did not lie. He's coming back soon. The promise of Jesus regarding His return and the resurrection that He has promised has been placed, ordered online long time ago. The moment He resurrected from the dead, the moment He stepped out from that tomb, resurrection was ordered online. The status is now pending. The promises that come with it, the new Jerusalem, the new heaven and earth, the new resurrected body, all those are pending. And you know when you order online, and you have made it successful, right? There's a check mark. There's a green timestamp that says successful, right? There's a verification sometimes with email or text. But you see, the resurrection of Jesus is a timestamp. It's a verification. He did not just resurrect and disappear. No, he did not. 1 Corinthians 15 say, He appeared to Peter and then to the twelve and then to more than 500 other people, and then to Apostle Paul. That was his timestamp. That was the verification that it was ordered online. Resurrection is coming. He's coming back soon. 
How soon? I don't know. He did not say. But it's soon. You see, Jesus appeared in person. And in play, it's not a myth. Like some other Christians would say, who are liberal in their views. Jesus really appeared in flesh. He talked with them. He ate with them. He was with them. And when I say He's coming soon, it's, it's He's coming soon. Church, I don't know when He's coming back. Rumor has it, it's sometime between August and December. I don't know. See, the details of His return is not as important as He is going to return. That's a fact. Otherwise, He would have told us when. So here's a challenge. Let us live our lives as if He can come anytime soon. What that means is that there will be or there should be no permanent plans. What that means is that vacations should be optional. Retirement is not what we are looking forward to. It's the coming of Jesus Christ. And our sense of hope and purpose should rest on the fact that what we do while waiting still matters. Let's pray. Father, thank you for for what you did. Thank you for the courage of for the courage of trusting your Father more than succumbing to the lies of the enemy. Thank you for encouraging us that as we suffer and go through tribulation in this present time, you have promised us with utmost security and utmost clarity that your promise is true. It will hold water. That our lives of meaning and purpose, that we are not just running after our dreams of, about money, sex, and power. That our real hope is about your kingdom, to be with you wherever you are. Father, allow us as a church to hold on to the promise. Come Christmas, I pray that you will not lead us to destruction, but allow us to focus on the real meaning and message of your gospel. Because in Christmas, on Christmas, it is you who we celebrate. In Jesus' name.